In certain traditions in the Christian faith, there is a kind of a popular practice to take a Bible and to, uh, when you're in a moment of crisis, to turn and open up to any book and put your finger down and see what God might be leading you towards. And I'm afraid that some folks who might have landed on this passage are deciding to move back in with their parents. And so <laughs> you might want to call them before you do that. But this morning, I want to draw our attention to what it means to be sensible. We want to be sensible people. And, and some of us here know what that means. Uh, you've lived a sensible life. I think of the young person who was planning their 18th birthday party, and they were really going to go all out for it. And their parents came to them and said, uh, you know what, you should probably be a little bit more sensible about your party. And of course, the young person looked at them and said, hey, you're only 18 once. And her parents said to her, well, actually, you're 18 365 times and 366 on a leap year. I've been told that uh, a sensible person would never order a double bourbon. It's too whiskey. Anybody? No? No? Nobody on that one? All right, all kidding aside. Now that we're warmed up a little bit, right? All kidding aside here. You know what being sensible looks like. I think we all know uh, what that looks like in our life. In last week's text, we were introduced to a family in crisis, right? That's what we saw when we started out in Ruth. In an effort to escape famine at home, uh, this particular family is living in a foreign land. They've moved to a place where they might find uh, more resources, more food. And it's there that the patriarch of the family dies, leaving his wife Naomi with the two sons. The sons go on to marry local women. And a, a time later, uh, they end up dying as well, leaving behind the mother and their wives. But there's no heirs. There's no heirs, no children. The harsh reality of Naomi's situation is captured in that last verse of our text last week. If you read in verse 5, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi is empty. She has no husband. She has no sons. And here she has no name. She's completely devoid and empty at that point. And as we observed last week, she's undone by all of this. Verse 6 reminds us that even so, that God isn't done. Even when we find ourselves undone, God isn't done. For Naomi had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. That's what verse 6 tells us in the start of our passage. Bread has come back to the house of bread. I like the sound of that. And so Naomi does the sensible thing, right? She does the sensible thing. She's heading home. She's going to go back and get some of that bread. And knowing that her plight will be a difficult one, just imagine a widow in the ancient world who has no more sons to offer to her daughters-in-laws. She does a second sensible thing. She gives her blessing to Orpah and to Ruth, saying, return back to your families. What's it say in verse 8? Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. And then in verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find security each of you in the house of your husband. Naomi's releasing them from any obligation that they might have at this moment to being daughters to their mother-in-law. And she invites them now to go home and become wives once more. When they resist, Naomi's going to spell it out for them. And we see that in verses 11 through 13. She says, I have no sons to provide uh, to you as husbands. Uh, Naomi cannot provide for them the security that she's hoping for them, right? What she articulates, she can't provide that for them. There's no hope for that. And so she wants them, in a very hopeful sense, to have that kind of life where they can have that security. 
And she wants them to have this kind of happiness, but she knows that she can't provide that future. The second thing she spells out for them is she's too old to marry. Naomi's too old at this point. Her own position places her in a vulnerable place, one that leaves her susceptible to poverty and being taken advantage of. But unlike her younger daughters, remarrying is not available to her. At least that's how she feels. And producing an heir appears entirely, entirely impossible. Hold on to that one for a second here. Actually, hold that on for longer. Hold it for weeks. We're going to come back to that one. That will come back to us. Third thing she says to him is, the Lord's hand is against me. I think many people here this morning and many people in our world would echo that type of sentiment amidst the struggle and the damage that's done in a life in crisis. God is against me. God is out to get me. In this case, you are still unconvinced. Uh, these two daughters who are sitting there, in case they might have thought there was some kind of hope for them, thinking that there's some place where they might find the blessing of God uh, staying with Naomi, she dashes that out. God is Naomi's enemy, is what Naomi's saying here. If you have any hope of experiencing the blessing of God, you won't be hanging out with the likes of me. If you want a good future, you're not going to hang out with Naomi because clearly God has it out for her. This idea that the Lord's hand is against Naomi fits with a theme that goes throughout the book of Ruth. It's one that we're going to continue to see as we read through uh, this, this text each week. And we're not to miss this. It's namely that the things in life don't happen by chance. That God is involved in the things that are happening, that God wills them to happen. But the perspective on the ground is oftentimes limited. And so as we go through, hold, that, hold on to that note, that God is involved, that God is at work, even amidst the struggle and the difficulty. So three compelling reasons in view. Leaving now is only the sensible thing, right? So Naomi goes back home, that's sensible. Leaving now is a sensible thing. And Orpah, she agrees. According to verse 15, she returns, quote, to her people and to her gods. But Ruth, on the other hand, chooses an altogether different path. She chooses something different. You see Ruth's little speech here in chapter 1, and I say little, I probably shouldn't say little, I should say grand, because of what it contains. Here's how Ruth articulates that path. Do not press me to leave you, or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. Of course, some of you here have heard that at a wedding. Has anybody heard that passage at a wedding? It used to be a very popular wedding text that folks would choose. Uh, if they weren't choosing 1 Corinthians 13, they would choose this particular text. And you'll see it, if you go online, you'll actually see a number of places where people have made hangings for their homes. Maybe that's what's replaced it as wedding things. It's now hanging on people's walls. But the commitment that Ruth articulates isn't made amidst wedding bliss, right? This, this isn't someone who's making a commitment uh, amongst what we would call wedding bliss. Remember all this, the loss of the family that she's experienced, that Naomi's experienced, uh, that Orpah's experienced. Ruth is making this claim and making this commitment at that point. In the midst of an uncertain future, in which there's nothing to look forward to, she makes this commitment. Alphanetta Wines will observe here, the context of these words is not the best of times, 
but rather the worst of times. So that's when she's making this commitment. With this in mind, this commitment doesn't seem sensible at all. She's investing in something that has no future from the ground. She's investing herself in someone who is good as dead. And she's leaving the possibility of having security and a hopeful future that Naomi promises and hopes for her daughter-in-laws when she says, go back home. She's canceling that out. And she's saying, I'm going to choose a different way. I'm going to choose a different path forward. I'm going to choose this path. Even though there's going to be seemingly no return on investment. But she steps out here anyways. It's not sensible. Did Ruth miss everything Naomi had just said? Was Ruth deaf and couldn't hear the words that Naomi spoke? Maybe she didn't speak loud enough. Maybe only Orpah heard her. And so Orpah goes, well, we clearly know that that's not the case. Because you remember those, those words that Naomi used to describe Orpah's return to her people and to her gods? That's covered in Ruth's statement. We actually hear in verse 16, your people will be my people and your God my God. Clearly Ruth hears Naomi and still makes a different kind of commitment. But what she learns from Naomi doesn't dissuade her, doesn't dissuade this woman from Moab from staying and claiming a new people as her own. This covenanting with one who doesn't reciprocate or is not in a position to be able to reciprocate, remember uh, Naomi's plan was to send her away, to have her go back home, is reminiscent of another's love. One who makes commitments and covenants with those who can't reciprocate. Doesn't that sound like God? The triune God who offers grace to a people and covenants with us, even when we cannot seemingly want to or desire or even can reciprocate at the level that God provides? It certainly raises the bar for what it means to love another person. Isn't that our call, to love our neighbor as ourself? At the same time, we find one of the contours here of faithful living, what it means to live the life of faith, that it isn't always sensible. It's not always the sensible thing. We certainly see that in Jesus' ministry. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, if any, any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who's, who lose their life for my sake will find it. Of course, to a lover of life and all the possibilities it might hold for my own gratification, taking up a cross doesn't sound at all sensible. There doesn't seem to be any return on investment there. I want to keep my life. Of course, we also see this contour in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus says to a rich young man, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Of course, in the ears of a rich young man, that doesn't seem to be sensible at all. That's not the sensible thing. And he goes away grieving because he has many possessions. He can't see the return on the investment there. Of course, he's not alone. But instead, we read in John chapter 6 that many would-be disciples, would-be followers of Jesus, turned back from following when the teaching became tough and difficult. Perhaps they too left to embrace something that was much more sensible. 
in their life. But Ruth invites each one of us this morning to consider one of the great paradoxes, that less is more. That being less sensible in moments of life, in some places, when it comes to faith, grants us a more sensible way forward, or I might say here, a more faithful expression to the way that we live. The less sensible way leads to something more. A week ago, we learned that people were booking vacation stays they never intended to use. See the story in the news about a week ago? Seems like a waste of money, right? You plan your vacation. I'm going to go on VRBO, and I'm going to rent myself a house, take my family on a vacation, just to throw the money away, saying, you know what, I'm just going to book one, and then I'm not going to go at all. But then we learned the stays were booked in Ukraine. And were being used to get funds directly to the people of that nation so they could be used to care for one another amidst the devastation of war. I read that on March 2nd and 3rd alone, 61,000 nights were booked in Ukraine and that people did not intend to use those stays at all. Put that right in the notes. Half of those were from folks here in our own country booking those stays. What appears to not be sensible turns out to be a more sensible way, to be a more faithful expression of loving one's neighbor and in turn loving God. So how does Ruth's example lead us to live in more sensible ways this morning for us today? Let me offer a few for us to consider in closing here. The first one is this, that we need to recognize that our decisions, no matter how seemingly small they might be, in the moment, ripple into the future, setting in motion all manner of future realities. That's the first thing where we need to start. That we walk through our lives and we make thousands and thousands and millions of decisions each and every day. And to recognize that those decisions actually set into motion things that happen throughout the course of our life. We never quite know when we'll make a decision that 10 years from now, will pay dividends in a way we never possibly could imagine back when we made that decision. For Ruth, her commitment here will give way to all kinds of things to come as we continue in the story. I was reading the devotional this past week, the, the Lenten devotional that we distributed, and if you're reading along in that, you uh, might remember there's a quote in there from When Breath Becomes Air, and I was reminded of that because I had read that book uh, previously, and then I saw it again in devotional. That quote, this is not the end or even the beginning of the end, this is just the end of the beginning. And that's where Ruth finds herself at this moment in this commitment. That the beginning was a story of crisis. It was a story of a family that was living amidst the destruction of the worst things that life can throw at you. And now she makes this commitment. And what we should find here in the story is from this point moving forward that we are now at the end of the beginning. That something is going to come to pass that neither Ruth or Naomi could have ever imagined amidst what they saw there on the ground. The second thing is this, is that though we are tempted many times to do the sensible thing, perhaps we too might see the example here of Ruth and instead strive to do something more faithful. To set the sensible aside for a moment, not seeking our own comfort first, but rather going out of our way 
to love our neighbor or be over the top in our generosity and in all its many expressions to not settle for what is the convenient. The New Testament Philippians chapter 2 provides a picture for us of what that posture looks like or what the posture we should assume should look like if we were to live that kind of life. And you won't be surprised to hear this. It's modeled after Jesus Christ. It's modeled after Christ and Christ's own humility. The third thing is this. We shouldn't overlook the fact that this claim of fidelity is made by an outsider. That Ruth is a complete outsider. That Naomi we talked about last week is the prodigal, her and her family, leaving the homeland, leaving that promised space, God's presence. And now we have this total outsider, this foreigner who's making this astounding claim of commitment. God's call here is made both to the prodigal and to the foreigner. That both are invited to be part of God's salvation story. An heir incorporated into the people of God. Sometimes the seemingly less sensible folks, the ones out there making all the bad decisions, the ones who are quote-unquote ruining their lives. If only they could do it the sensible way, the way that I imagine it should be lived. You know, sometimes those folks on the outside remind us of how covenant faithfulness looks or should look on the inside. For us not to forget that. And when they do so, they call us back. They call us back to a faithful expression of our own. For us to live in a way that makes more sense than the sensible way I imagine for myself. And not to lose sight of that. Big decisions start with small decisions. That's big. Sensible things are not always the right things. Don't overlook the outsider. Friends, as we go on uh, through this season of Lent, it's my hope that we too might consider ways that we can act in ways that are not sensible. You don't oftentimes hear a pastor say that. I want you to live recklessly. Just kidding. But not really. I want us to be over the top. I want us to be over the top in our faithful expressions. I want us to be over the top in the way that we love one another and that we share love with this community. I want us to give it away and not expect any kind of return. In fact, the return that we are looking for looks quite a bit different than the one I hope for in my own comfort. May God allow us to live into that life, to live into that reality today and every day of our life. To the glory of God. Amen.